0: Hi, everyone, this is Mark Diskowitz, Editor-at-Large for MMNM, and welcome to the MMN Podcast. It's the day after the U.S. election, and while, as of the taping of this podcast, the general election is a little too close of a race to call, at least for another day, we've gathered an all-star group of healthcare policy pundits to give their take on what we do know so far about the election results, and with particular emphasis on the implications for medical marketers. I'll introduce them in a moment, first a couple of housekeeping notes as we always do on this podcast, and there's really just one, MMM's inaugural media summit will be taking place next Thursday, November 12, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, virtually. This event will bring together A-list organizations and individuals from all parts of the health media spectrum, spanning digital, print, and TV to radio and out of home to discuss and debate the most pressing issues in medical media, from programmatic to point of care and everything in between. So you don't want to miss that. And you can register for free at our website, mmm-online.com forward slash events. Okay, now, as I mentioned, we're going to devote this podcast to breaking down the, election, the uh, excuse me, health policy implications of Election Day and what they mean for medical marketers. Let's do some introductions. Uh, First, we have Tamar Thompson. Uh, She's VP Government Affairs and Policy at Alexion Pharmaceuticals. She's an alumnus of uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Progenics, and GE, and she's no doubt managed government affairs for many clients throughout her career, having worked for several healthcare policy consultancies in and around the Beltway. Welcome back to the MMM podcast, Tamar.
1: Thank you. Really great to be
0: here. We're excited to have you here. Uh, We also welcome John Bigelow. He's Executive Director for the Coalition for Healthcare Communication, which is the industry organization devoted to ensuring the high quality and continued availability of truthful and accurate scientific and medical information among healthcare practitioners and the public. We're well familiar with his frequent policy updates for those working in the healthcare communications industry. And I've known you for many years, John. You're always a a go-to source for any reporter. Uh, It's a pleasure to welcome you as well.
2: Thank you, Mark. Glad to be here.
0: And last but certainly not least, another A-list Health Policy Pro, whom I've had the privilege of interviewing for the first time a number of years ago, uh, Dr. Dora Hughes. Uh, She's Associate Research Professor for the GW Milken School of Public Health. Dora is a former senior policy advisor at the law firm of Sidley Austin and a former health policy advisor to Senator Barack Obama once upon a time. Welcome, Dora.
3: Thank you. Looking forward to the conversation.
0: I am too. Uh, Thank you all for being here, uh, and again, our goal is to uh, break down these implications for our industry, and we've got a lot of ground to cover, so uh, let's get started. Uh, I thought we would begin with uh, talking about what we know. Um, John, obviously a lot is still hanging in the balance um, as a press time, so to speak, but uh, set the stage for us. You know, What do we know so far in terms of the presidency and key Senate races?
2: Well, certainly many people have believed all along that this is going to be a very close election in a bitterly divided country. Uh, there have been many twists and turns along the way during this election, many things that in any other year would have been considered the October surprise that would change the direction. And in fact, we finished the race with uh, the relative positions of Vice President Biden and President Trump being very similar. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, there were some Democrats who began to dream of a blue wave, thinking that the tide was changing, but in fact... Here we are at about 2.45 in the afternoon, the day after election day, not sure who has won the presidency. Uh, As we're sitting here, uh, Biden is leading Trump by 237 to 214 electoral votes. That number will change even in the next few hours. As further mail-in votes are counted, they probably favor the Democratic candidates on balance. And my guess is that Biden will probably be the winner when the votes are counted, but there's still a possibility for President Trump. And whichever way it finishes, there may be legal challenges that will keep us all guessing for some days, weeks, conceivably even a month or so into the future. Also, it seems that the Senate will remain under Republican control. There's an outside chance of it flipping but that would depend on a lot of things happening, including um, runoff races in Georgia that will not take place until January. And I think it's probably unlikely. So probably the Senate will remain in Republican hands and the House is clearly going to remain in Democratic hands. So we'll have
0: divided government
2: going forward,
0: Right, which will make things an uphill climb for whoever is, is in the White House. Um, since, uh, you know, Biden is in the lead uh, as of this taping, you know, Can you just talk about the two scenarios a little bit, what would happen uh, in in a Biden presidency, what would happen in in a Trump presidency?
2: Well, starting with what would happen in a Biden presidency, I think the first thing is, of course, um, there would be legal challenges over the next few weeks. President Trump has made it very clear he's going to run a variety of challenges. These probably would not overturn a Biden victory based on what we see now, but what we can't know is what little issues may come up along the way. I think the other thing, if Biden is the winner, is that Trump is not going to go away quietly. We have a very unusual situation where we would have a one-term president who could say that he wants to run for president again in 2024 and whether or not Donald Trump actually intended to run again, it is probably to his advantage to say he's going to run again, to keep a lot of leverage in the party, to keep himself in the name. And that would make it a very difficult scenario for an inaugurated President Trump. And of course, the 2024 campaign is starting right now in both parties, people looking to be the next Republican nominee, but also given Joe Biden's age, very likely people starting to position themselves on the Democratic side. If we pursue the prospect of a Biden presidency, he would come in with the Senate probably under the control of the Republicans. So he would have to be very careful in how he uses his political capital and trying to get things done. He would come into office on January 20th at a time when COVID cases are very likely to be peaking even higher than they are now, when there's a lot of public resistance to certain public health guidelines, for example, to any mask mandates, at a time when a vaccine may just be about at the point of being approved, but where you still have to manage the rollout of that vaccine to various parts of our population, You would need another COVID relief measure, almost certainly with the last of the current COVID relief measure running out on December 31st. You'd have some other issues on the table. The federal budget for 2021 has still not been passed. There's a continuing resolution that takes the deadline to December 11, and that will probably be pushed into February, so it becomes part of his problem. And then, of course, you have other Initiatives that he campaigned on. For example, in his case, the Build Back Better Infrastructure and Environmental uh, Bill. So he is going to have a number of things on his plate. If President Trump is the candidate who wins, he has not announced any particular initiatives that are different than continuations of the ones that he's already working on. I don't think you'd see much of a difference in his behavior in controlling the COVID pandemic, but I think you may see some movement towards that final COVID relief bill. You might see a lot of uh, protests from people who are unhappy about his election, too. So there's still the possibility of unrest out in the country. And I think you would see some significant changes in the Trump administration's key leadership, just as you would in a new administration from Vice President Biden.
0: Thank you for for that, and that that's a perfect segue to my next question, which is talking about uh, changes in the administration. Uh, You know, Dora, we've heard that if uh, President Trump is reelected, a lot of the career scientists could be replaced with political appointees. Um, Who are some of those key players where where we should keep our eye out for changes?
3: Well, I think uh, even before I thought about the career employees, I would uh, think in terms of uh, President Trump's current political appointees. uh, It's not. Uh, clear whether the cabinet secretary, Secretary Azar would remain in his position, it's not clear whether the cdc director dr redfield will remain in his position and there is other uh, individuals dr han fda um seem like many of them have have tingled or with the, the president or his have displeased him in some fashion and so it's unclear if uh, if they might be uh, like or if, if they might choose to resign i would even say that uh, even those that technically can't be fired by the president uh, uh, um, could be the focus of his wrath. Uh, certainly we've seen at their recent campaign rallies that they have chanted, uh, fire Fauci. Uh, it's uh, no secret of his displeasure uh, with Dr. Fauci at NIH. And so could be uh, on the president's list. That being said, there are some very strong civil protections for career officials. You do have to show evidence and be judged uh, by uh, objective board in, in terms of poor performance or misconduct or, or, or other factors uh, along those lines, it can't be simply because the president does not like the advice uh, that you have to give. And so we might see some change in career officials because of morale, or they may wanna choose other um, uh, opportunities or they may, may be moved to different positions, but in fact, it's extremely difficult Uh, to fire career officials so that there can be this bridge between administrations and a a deep bench of of the expertise and experience needed to run the government. And I think that's particularly critical in times like this. I would also, I loved it to go back. I do think that um, I agree with all that John said. I would say that the one advantage to uh, a president if if he prevails is that even with the divided Senate, at least it's very helpful that he spent years in the Senate. He understands uh, how the Senate functions, he has uh, relationships, he will be able to hit the ground running. And I think that, that given whether it's the economic issues we face, the pandemic, that certainly will be to the advantage, uh, as well as uh, his own uh, experience with whether it's H1N1 pandemic or the, uh, the Ebola outbreak. So. Um, so I think uh, that would be certainly one positive that can't be overstated, uh, given some of the challenges that he will immediately have to tackle.
0: That makes sense. Uh, he, he's got a lot of longstanding relationships uh, in, in and around the beltway. That, that, that's for sure that will help him hit the ground running. Um you know, since, since we're back on the subject, just kind of of, of uh, the two scenarios of, of a Biden presidency versus a Trump presidency tomorrow, you know, for just from an industry perspective, do you think that biopharma is kind of looking forward to or has a preference for one or the other?
1: Um, well, put me on the spot there, Mark. I'm sorry about that. Mark. I, I think, no, no, that's what I'm here for. Um, you know, listen, I think there are pros and cons, uh, when you talk about a Republican or a Democratic administration for, uh, the pharmaceutical community. Um, you know, when you talk about things like, uh, drug pricing reform, um, which has been a hot topic, um, the interesting thing is that both sides of the aisle agree. Um, that drug pricing reform is something that needs to occur. Uh, there are other areas in healthcare, and uh, specifically, you know, we um, are thinking about at least I am post election uh, November the 10th because that's when the Supreme Court will take up the hearing on ACA. And so I think that you know these things are important issues for for which, you know, will affect not only the biopharma industry, but healthcare at large. Um, And it is interesting to see how uh, some of the traditional values of each party have overlapped, you know, when you look at drug pricing, going back to that, you know, I think What we disagree about here is how to move forward (laughs) with reforms, Um, but I think everyone believes that the reforms need to occur, including industry, Um, but how we get there is the challenge. Um, And so it will be interesting to see as we move forward, should we have a Biden administration and a divided Congress? Um, with the Senate being held by the Republican Party, how uh, we are able to tackle some of these larger macro challenges um, that are before us not only on the healthcare platform, but specifically um, looking at pharma in general,
0: macro challenges indeed. And speaking of that, John, you know we didn't talk about the FDA, I don't think, yet. And uh, when we were talking about, or when Dora was, you know, kind of talking about the key players, uh, would you do you think that we could see a change uh, there in terms of the commissioner? Well, I, I
2: think you would certainly see a new commissioner if uh, Joe Biden is becoming president. It's uh, what is commonly Expected at a change of administration. And as Dora indicated, I think that even if President Trump is reelected, Dr. Hahn's tenure is very much in question. In fact, I would say that he almost certainly would be replaced with somebody who would be, shall we say, more um, attuned to President Trump's preferences. If that were the case, I think a danger would be that President Trump has in the past flirted before he appointed Scott Gottlieb as his first FDA commissioner, with appointing as an FDA commissioner someone who took a market-based approach to product approvals. For example, he's talked about people who have suggested that you run some studies for safety, but you put a product on the market and then let the market determine if it's effective. And to be honest, that's not that much different than what President Trump was proposing with hydroxychloroquine, or some other potential COVID therapies. In contrast, Vice President Biden has made a central tenet of his campaign, the idea that science matters. And I think you can be confident that he would appoint a public health specialist or scientist as his FDA commissioner. Many people have mentioned Josh Sharfstein as a contender. He, in the Obama administration, was initially the acting commissioner and then the principal deputy commissioner under Peggy Hamburg. And as recently as the last few days, I saw him in a biopharma Congress session being asked straight on, did he expect to take a senior role in the Biden administration of would he like to be FDA commissioner? And he he dodged the question, but he did not dodge it with any protests of innocence. So I I think he would be a possible candidate. One other thing I would mention is that I think that the unprecedented political attacks against the Food and Drug Administration over the course of the last several months, especially in relation to the uh, idea brooded around by the White House that they were somehow trying to delay COVID vaccines and products, or even were part of the deep state trying to block President Trump from progress in that area, has demoralized a lot of key people within the Food and Drug Administration and I think the door is right there could be a number of people who um, vote with me by walking out the door, uh, rather than serve again in the next uh, administration.
0: Conversely, if, if there is a, a Biden presidency, I would uh, expect those uh, who, who are in office to do a better job of deferring to the public health experts versus what we've seen over the last many months of, uh, you know, the constant, as Dora put it, the, you know, those who have tangled with, you know, the uh, the administration regarding almost every issue regarding the, the pandemic and the response to it. Okay, uh, thank you for that A little bit of uh, conjecture. Uh, let's just uh, switch gears here a little bit and talk about... Um, the you know next steps in terms of uh, healthcare policy issues that we could anticipate coming down the pike, um, whether there's a change in, in the um, executive branch or not, there are some immediate issues uh, that we can expect on the policy front. I know um, tomorrow you know mentioned the the big um, SCOTUS uh, case coming up, uh, but Dora, could you talk about what particular policy issues that you have your eye on?
3: Uh, yes, I, I completely agree with uh, Tamara. Uh, the ACA case uh, would probably be top of the list, although with the, possibly with the tie of uh, with the pandemic response. Just very briefly, uh, the, on November 10th, we, the Supreme Court will hear oral arguments with respect to forever the attempts by Republicans to uh, to repeal or get rid of the ACA. Uh, This time it's the question again of whether the individual mandate, uh, if that's constitutional, and if so, if it is unconstitutional, then does that invalidate the entire ACA? Uh, I should say, I'm not a lawyer, so this is a completely uh, non-technical version of the events before us. But uh, in in terms of the justices, they'll have to decide, A, uh, does Texas and the other group of Republican states and individuals First, do they even have legal standing to bring the case? Uh, but the second, more serious issue for them to decide is uh, that is severability, meaning that even if the individual mandate is found to be unconstitutional, uh, um, does that mean that the entire ACA has to go? And that that I think for for many Americans, they don't appreciate that is it's much more an ACA contain just much more than just the insurance provisions uh, in terms of of uh, the marketplace, it's also young adults staying on their parents' policy to their 26. This is also uh, whether there's a ban on pre-existing conditions. It's also uh, uh, particularly for our audience, it's a ban uh, what would happen with the biosimilar pathway that the AC created uh, or with um, the innovation center. So there's a whole host of issues that uh, would that uh, are have that are relevant here uh, when we talk about the Supreme Court case and and what could happen. Um and it's even though I think uh legal experts on both sides of the aisle have said that the the court cases uh, the foundation is fairly weak a uh, number of uh, shabby uh, legal arguments, that being said, it's still when cases get to Supreme Court, it's unpredictable what might happen, and both sides are gearing up for. Uh, for what uh, what can happen, and and the important part also is John mentioned because the Senate is likely to retain a Republican control. That means the Congress can't fix the problem um, uh, because the Senate Republicans are not supportive. Um, there could very easily with this whole situation could very easily be fixed uh, if the Congress is, was supportive of the AC, and that unfortunately looks like that's going to be off the table. So, so um, so that's one issue. Uh, and then, just very briefly, uh, the pandemic as uh, is, is mentioned. The cases are surging, and we still uh, have, don't really have a national response. I think with the current administration, their hopes now are just pinned on pushing out an effective vaccine. I think if, if President, if there is a President Biden, uh, then uh, then there would be an uh, attempt to uh, to craft and implement a more national response strategy with that includes the public health interventions, whether that's social distancing and um, PPE or contact uh, testing and contact tracing, all of that would be part of it, more consistent messaging. Um, And then also with the vaccine, it's not even just a matter of getting a vaccine approved, but also thinking about how how will we allocate it equitably across states and within states to make sure that those at highest risk of uh, of sickness and death or even the risk of uh, exposure, how are we making sure that we are getting the vaccine to them first? Because certainly, even when vaccines are approved, there's gonna be such a limited supply in the early days, we have to be very thoughtful about how we allocate that. So there's a lot of huge decisions and major issues uh, on the plate for whoever uh, the next president will be for the next four years. Um, And so that just kind of adds to everyone's uh, uh, angst in terms of who's it going to be and what can we expect in the days ahead.
0: Especially during the, the confirmation hearings for Justice Amy Coney Barrett, it seemed that mm-hmm. some were hinting uh, at the uh, the possibility that the ACA could be overturned, but it's not exactly a slam dunk, is it?
3: No, uh, definitely not. There's uh, um, and, and even, I, I think as John had mentioned earlier, even even for the, the Republican uh, nominees to the court, it's still not clear uh, how they will weigh on the issue of severability as, as well as some of the other court issues. And so, um, so even though people will still be on pins and needles, I, it's, it's certainly not a slam dunk uh, for, um, for the plaintiffs by no means.
0: Uh, let's uh, switch gears once again and, and go over to the regulatory area. John, could you touch on some of the uh, issues that um, are of particular interest to the pharma industry?
2: Well, sure. I think that there's at least a couple of areas to talk about. One would be uh, drug pricing reform, and another would be taxation. On drug pricing reform, uh, President Trump and Vice President Biden clearly have vastly different perspectives on a wide variety of issues, but actually... There's been significant overlap in their attitudes towards drug pricing reform, Uh, basically the idea that drug prices need to be uh, restrained in some way. Both of them have talked about more generics, more biosimilars as part of the solution. Both of them have advocated for some measure to end surprise medical bills. Each of them has talked about facilitating drug importation, slight variations in how. Each of them have uh, talked at one point or another about having Medicare negotiate with drug manufacturers. Trump has backed off a little bit from that, but certainly it's a core element of Vice President Biden's approach. Vice President Biden goes a little further than Trump would in that he would like to limit increases in the prices of drugs to the rate of inflation and have tax penalties if that's not done. President Trump has talked about a. So-called International Pricing Index, or more recently, he's referred to the most favored nations approach of limiting what Medicare pays for uh, drugs to a percentage of what is paid in foreign countries. And interestingly, Vice President Biden has proposed a panel that would determine what are reasonable prices for drugs that were considered to be, quote, abusively priced, end quote, uh, in which one of the criteria would be what the prices paid in other countries are. So when you look at all that, and when you also look at the drug price reform packages that have been passed in the House, Bill H.R. 3, and also by the Senate Finance Committee, there's a lot of common ground that, that could come together in some kind of plan. I think the reality, though, is that if you know, Biden becomes the president, he's going to have a lot on his plate This is not going to be a core priority issue. And we've already seen that President Trump has not really pushed this as hard and certainly not as effectively as people were anticipating he would do. So I think the most immediate possibility on drug pricing reform is that something might get fit into a COVID relief package if in fact there's a significantly sized package that gets through Congress in the coming months. And that might start with, for example, having some limits on the pricing of COVID-related drugs and vaccines. It could be a ban and surprise medical bills specifically for COVID, measures like that. Uh, After that, perhaps later in 2021, there are efforts in the Senate and House to try to hammer together some kind of bill along the lines where they both agree. I think the other aspect from a pharma industry point of view, marketing industry point of view as well, is that whichever person is sworn in on January 20th is going to face a new fiscal reality, which is that the combination of the trillions of dollars in COVID relief that's already been spent and more trillions are almost certainly going to be spent going forward, plus the increased cost to the government of the social safety net at a time of profound recession, plus the decreased tax revenues, that equation equals much higher federal deficits. Uh, In the fiscal year that just ended September 30th, the deficit hit $3.1 trillion. For the current fiscal year, it will almost certainly be trillions of dollars. And uh, each of the candidates has during their campaign proposed other ways to spend money, whether it's an infrastructure or on environment, or on the border wall, or on the military. Everybody has a way to spend money. And so somehow, they're going to have to find ways of clawing back some of that money. Now, the pressure is off right now. You don't want to raise taxes during a recession. Interest rates are quite low. So this is not as much of a problem for the federal government today as it would have been a few years ago or would be in the future. On the other hand, it is a limiting factor going forward. And especially if the senate is still controlled by republicans a president biden would be under a lot of pressure to find ways of uh, reducing the deficit even president trump will probably be under pressure from the senate republicans no one wants to have an increase on the taxes of middle-class americans so that means looking for other measures that could claw back some money so that brings us back to the idea of a tax on pharmaceutical marketing which has been bandied about many times in the past. Vice President Biden has endorsed the bill uh, introduced in Congress by Senator Gene Shaheen, which would impose a tax on DTC advertising. I don't think President Trump has ever made a specific comment about that bill. Uh, There have been a number of proposals over time for taxing all pharmaceutical marketing, not just DTC advertising, but also professional marketing. There also, a few years ago, were proposals to tax all marketing, period, not just pharmaceutical, but in other areas. And I think some of these bills, some of these ideas are going to be in the forefront again. If the proposal is to tax only pharmaceutical marketing, that would raise a lot of legal issues and it would create an odd situation where you might have taxes uh, or you might have a lack of deductibility of marketing expenses for products like tobacco or firearms or gambling or alcohol, but not for innovative life-saving drugs. That would be a pretty strange situation. But if the proposals are brought in to include all marketing, then that becomes a little bit harder to argue on a fairness basis. So that's a really open question. I would also like to mention that state budgets are getting hammered as well. Moody's has estimated that in the current fiscal year, $160 billion of new deficits at the state budget level will arise because of their um, need to fight the COVID pandemic. And all but one state has either a balanced budget amendment or laws that require a balanced budget. So again, the states are looking for revenue as well. Maryland earlier this year passed a digital advertising tax as a way at the time of raising funds for their educational system. This would impose a 25 to 10% tax on all digital advertising, pharma as well as other digital advertising. The governor in Maryland, Governor Hogan, vetoed it, but the bill initially passed with veto-proof majorities in both houses of the Maryland legislature. And it's very possible that there would be an override vote the next time the legislature meets, which will probably be in January, the District of Columbia, New York, Nebraska, and some other states are also considering such measures. That's another thing we all need to be watching for.
0: Thank you for that rundown. Uh, Tamar, we'd love to get your take on uh, drug pricing reform. And what do you think the parties are likely to agree on?
1: Uh, <laughs> great question. Um, you know, I think that uh, John's right in the sense that, you know, there are multiple Bills that are out there. We have an EO. Let us not forget that was signed in August. All of which come to you know head on on how to get there, which was my opening you know comments of. Uh, it's interesting that many agree. It's just the path of how how you get there and is is going to be the opportunity for us all. Um, it, you know, if I'm, if I'm just being candid, what we have on the table with, with respect to just pricing reform, I don't think gets us to the place where we actually want to be, which is, you know, an, an ability for us to have a better, Richter, you know, for controlling or reining in pricing. There are a number of things that are not happening here in any of the proposed pieces of legislation, um, that are going to remain problematic for us. We are able to, at indication based pricing for therapies that come into the marketplace or innovations. And when you look at platform technology, it, and, and we talk about abuse of you know, certain companies in raising prices, part of the challenge that you have as a manufacturer is that you bring a new innovation to market, you set it at a price, and then that's the price. If the product is useful, Um, you know, for, for one indication and not so useful for another. In this country, we have no way of differentiating that. So I think we still have a number of opportunities before us that we are not dealing with. This is the challenge we have when we look at things at a macro level, and we're basing a lot of our concerns about drug pricing on passion and and not not facts or policy. So, I, in passing any type of legislation, I would encourage us all to you know think about what we're actually trying to accomplish and hope that we could look at something you know that gets us there. I think Medicare negotiation is certainly better than reference pricing, uh, you know, to other countries because of. The way that our healthcare system is set up in this country, it just doesn't, it's not an apples for apples comparison. So, uh, you know, if I had my drugs, I'd, you know, say scrap it and go back to the drawing board. I don't think we're there. I think we're long, you know, long gone from that type of a discussion. And I think we find ourselves at some type of landing spot on drug, ne- drug price negotiation, um, for sure. Uh, if we find ourselves in a Biden administration, the question is how, how the Senate takes that up. Because, you know, certainly there would be alignment between uh, the White House, assuming it's the Biden administration, and the House um, with what, you know, Speaker Pelosi wants to do on H.R. 3. And the challenge that we then have is how the Senate takes that up and deals with it from there.
0: And, and the immediate steps for that, that Biden has pledged to take do include that Medicare price negotiation, don't they? Yes. Yeah. Any indication of what what might happen to rebates, which was kind of a a contentious issue the past couple of years?
1: Uh, I think I'm going to go back and on to Doris' uh, comments and my earlier comments about ACA because, you know, (laughs) the way we're doing rebates at this juncture in time, we have two paths forward. We can get the OIG to make an opinion to allow us to make some very differential decisions about how we think about rebating in this country for pharmaceutical drugs, or we can continue to work through what we've seen happen um, in some ways of, of dealing with things through the Innovation Center on the 10th. If we find ourselves in a situation where we have the ACA fall or whether it maintains, you know, the Innovation Center becomes maybe more of a limited option. I think the challenge that we have with re- rebate reform uh, it, it, there's a number of paths and avenues that we could take here. Um, my preference would be for us to have an OIG opinion that you know gives us a very clear pathway. On how to deal with this, and that we're not we're not in a place where we're looking to the innovation center um, and rules and regulations that can be reinterpreted with each administration, or you know when when things change for us to be able to deal with rebates. It, I, I think that's the best path forward. Again, not a lawyer either, so I'll make the same disclo- disclosures as, as Dora there. But I think the path to rebates at this juncture is unclear for the reasons that we've outlined. In, in, in the whole conversation that we've had today, which is there's just so much uncertainty not knowing which way the administration will truly fall, not knowing what's gonna come out of the ACA and, and the path of, of what we're gonna be able to accomplish in a divided Congress.
0: Uh, as uh, you know, the CEO uh, of Merck, Ken <laughs> Frazier pointed out when uh, he and fellow pharma CEOs were testifying before Congress, uh, if a company brings a product at a low price to market, they get punished. Um, you know, commercially, and that has a lot to do with the rebates. So uh, rebate reform, definitely something we could see rear its head going forward. Uh, Okay, I thought we'd spend the last uh, couple of minutes, you know, talking about uh, public health. And Dora, you you know, you touched on the country's pandemic response uh, earlier. Can you kind of give your take, you know, from a population health point of view, um, and especially with regard to the social determinants of health, what's your prescription? You know, what do we need to do Keeping that in mind and the fact that communities of color, African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans have been the hardest hit. What do we need to do um, to, to to find our way out of this uh, pandemic?
3: Now, th- thank you for that. And uh, although I, I appreciate your, your effort to move us along, I did just want to take 30 seconds to say, uh, even with the ACA, regardless, if it should fall, whether it's President Trump or Biden, they will have to come up with a new solution because you will... Uh, you know, at risk of having 20 to 30 million Americans newly uninsured, that is a not a tenable situation. And if President uh, Biden is elected, he's already said that he's going to push forward uh, a a health reform, whether it's the new public option. And so I say that because all of the discussion about rebates and taxes, any of these newer options will require pay-fors or offsets. And so I think that that um, just kind of helps to kind of Provide a bit more context in terms of, uh, of social determinants of health and health equity. I certainly think that Vice President Biden has made it very clear from his campaign uh, and his policy proposals that health equity will be uh, a, a core policy priority for his new uh, <clears throat> for his new administration, and that runs the gamut from the very basic bread and butter. Proposals that we have to increase data collection and reporting, for example, so that we can better target certain populations that we can uh, hotspot what what have you to uh, more proposals relating to uh, uh, vaccine allocation, for example. Uh, how do we uh, make sure that perhaps, uh, for example, uh, that we re- uh, using CDC social vulnerability index to find the areas, the communities that are most at risk for for bad outcomes and Uh, make sure that they are not uh, sidestepped or don't have uh, full access to uh, vaccines and other medical treatments and and tests, as we have already seen that they have had challenges uh, here to date. Um, And even more thinking more proactively, then how do we address housing instability? How do we address food insecurity? How do do we think about transportation so that we're, uh, as as Vice President Biden says, so we can build back better. Uh, I think that certainly, even though it's a campaign slogan, I do think that they would very seriously look uh, across departments to think about what are some of the areas that we can increase investment or invest smarter, uh, have a just a, a stronger stronger America. Uh, and so I think that that um, uh, could be very encouraging. One area that I would say that's that on both sides, I don't expect there to be uh, any change. Tomorrow mentioned the Innovation Center, see C- the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation as part of CMS. And I will have to say that the current administration has really continued to uh, put forth these value-based uh, demonstrations that the models through CMMI and they've spanned the gamut from whether it's uh, hospice care or, you um, uh, better kidney care or more um, integration, clinical community services, the whole range of models, they've continued that drumbeat of putting out these new models that are focusing on uh, value-based medicine. Um, and I don't expect that to change. Uh, certainly, uh, if if there's a President Biden, we're going to continue to see these um, more healthcare delivery uh, and payment policy innovation move forward. And even for this administration, they too have started to think about what are metrics of health equity, for example, that we can be building into these models. And so uh, I do think for all the differences that people are focused on, there are different approaches uh, in terms of value-based medicine, that has been an area that there has been uh, some agreement in terms of priority and and importance. And I wouldn't imagine any retreat uh, on that front uh, with the change in in the administration or continuation of this current administration.
0: And uh value-based medicine and, and, the, and the change from away from fee-for-service has certainly been something that uh, biopharma companies have, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you want to say embraced, but you know they've kind of been experimenting over the years with value-based contracting with payers. Uh, Tamar, we'd love to get your take on where you see areas of experimentation and innovation going forward as that shift continues to gain traction.
1: Yeah. So I, I think this is an interesting conversation on the value-based purchasing and contracting piece because- um, until we get to a place where we can actually measure quality of outcomes and talk about those social determinants of health and, and where um, therapies and medicines and overall health care can be useful. Um, when you look at dealing with this from a pharma perspective, ultimately it ends up being a glorified rebate, right? Because if you if you don't have a true ability to uh, to measure the outcome on a meaningful scale and um, truly find the benefit to thread that needle through uh, the continuum of overall healthcare costs. And it really does just become a glorified rebate. So I think it, the interesting opportunity areas, we've looked at the Netflix model with the Hep C products. The challenge that I have with that model is that, you know, the way we pay for healthcare, the financing of the healthcare system in this country is that that's not a viable broad scale solution, right? Like, you know, is um, Blue Cross Blue Shield invest in the Netflix model? Um, are they worried that Cigna is going to get the benefit of it when people churn through the system? And the same is true, you know, the Medicaid side of things as well. So I think that, you know, the opportunities with cell and gene therapy, and it's interesting to see what Bluebird has, you know, mentioned um, opportunity-wise with with their model, assuming that, you know, they're successful. Um, so, you know, I, I do feel that there's no white one answer and that I, I like the way that states are coming up with alternative solutions for their needs. And also looking at the variations of therapies that are coming into the marketplace and trying to work with companies uh, you know to be creative. So I do like the idea of uh the way we're thinking about the Netflix model for Hep C and thinking a little differently um, for selling gene therapies. And I do love that the um this this administration has um given that flexibility through eleven fifteen and thirteen thirty-two waivers to the state. Uh, to be able to come up with solutions that works for them. You know, just kind of pointing back to John's point, we, we know that states are strapped for, uh, you know, for funding. And we know that that's going to only be exacerbated um, by the COVID situation. If we don't find ourselves in um, another relief package anytime soon in this lame duck, um, then we, we're going to see more Medicaid exchange you know, we're going to see more folks added to the Medicaid rosters, which only is going to tax the states further. So, you know, I, I like the idea of the variation and creative solutions, but the the VBC and the VVP, whatever acronyms do, if you want to use, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach.
0: Thank you, Tamar, for mentioning the, you know, pay-for-effectiveness model, the Netflix model, uh, <laughs> and uh, these these really innovative uh, payment-based models for cell and gene therapies. Uh, it's definitely an area of collaboration and something we'll keep our eyes on. I want to just bring things to a close here. Um, We hope you all out there enjoyed this wide-ranging post-election day analysis. I want to thank our all-star healthcare policy guests, Dora, John, and Tamar. Thank you so much for indulging me here uh, for these last 45 minutes or so. And I want to thank you, everyone out there, for listening. If you like this podcast as much as I did, please like us, uh, please subscribe, help others discover the show. And uh, that'll do it for another episode of the MMN podcast. We'll see you next time everybody. Take care.
2: Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you.